You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Carl Jung wrote, There are certain events of which we have not consciously taken note. They have remained, so to speak, below the threshold of consciousness. They have happened, but they have been absorbed subliminally. The Latin root of the word subliminal translates to below threshold. Psychologists employ the term to mean below the threshold of consciousness. This book is about subliminal effects in that broad sense, about the processes of the unconscious mind and how they influence us. To gain a true understanding of human experience, we must understand both our conscious and our unconscious selves and how they interact. Our subliminal brain is invisible to us, yet it influences our conscious experience of the world in the most fundamental of ways, how we view ourselves and others, the meanings we attach to everyday events of our lives, our ability to make the quick judgment calls and decisions that can sometimes mean the difference between life and death, and the actions we engage in as a result of all those instinctual experiences. Though the unconscious aspects of human behavior were actively speculated about by Jung, Freud, and many others over the past century, the methods they employed, introspection, observations of overt behavior, the study of people with brain deficits, the implanting of electrodes into the brains of animals, provided only fuzzy and indirect knowledge. Meanwhile, the true origins of human behavior remained obscure. Things are different today. Sophisticated new technologies have revolutionized our understanding of the part of the brain that operates below our conscious mind, what I'm referring to here as a subliminal world. These technologies have made it possible for the first time in human history for there to be an actual science of the unconscious. That new science of the unconscious is the subject of this book. Leonard Mladenov is the author of The Drunkard's Walk. With Stephen Hawking, he co-wrote A Briefer History of Time and The Grand Design. His new book is Subliminal, How Your Unconscious Mind Rules Your Behavior. Thank you for joining me, Leonard. Thanks. It's great to be here. This is such a fascinating book, and it's interesting because I think people who read this book will... Uh, it will change not only the way they see the world, but the way they see themselves and the way that they see the way they see the world. <laughs> I think that's true. It, it certainly did that for me. In the very opening, you, you talk about... Charles his, Sanders Pierce. Charles Sanders Pierce and his little experiment that he conducted. Yes. Well, uh, actually, a few decades earlier, uh, the, the first experiment was done that you might say was a quantitative experiment on... Uh, that had to do with psychology. And that was an experiment where they put weight on, on someone's hand and they tested to see what the minimum distinctions you could make between different, different weights. What Pierce and his student Joseph Jastrow did was they, they put weights on people's hand and they, so, so to speak, forced them to, to guess which weight was heavier. So rather than, than accepting when the subject said that they couldn't tell, they made them make a guess. And what they found was that in 60% of the cases, the subjects could actually tell which weight was heavier, even though they didn't consciously realize it. So they would, this is called a, today a forced choice experiment, where you make someone make a choice, even though they say, I don't really know. And what this showed was that their unconscious mind was picking up this, this signal about which weight was heavier, but at a level that their conscious mind wasn't aware of. So that was really the first, let's say, physical evidence that our unconscious mind is telling us things. 
Now, one of the things I think that's so interesting about this book is you give us kind of a brief history of our understanding of the mind and how Freud kind of, in a sense, almost uh, created the unconscious, and then that was quickly dismissed, and Freud is now seen as more of a, a literary figure than a scientific one. Well, in the late 19th century, Freud and, and many others were interested in the unconscious mind, and Freud is the one who s somehow mostly survived, let's say, in our culture. Uh, William James, of course, was also interested in the unconscious, and he survived in, in the uh, field of psychology. But in our popular culture, Freud was the one who really ended up being listened to. And, and he, his work really dominated our culture for the 20th century in, in, in literature and in movies and in, 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 me, in the mass media. But f although Freud was onto something in the sense that the unconscious mind is very important and has a great effect on your conscious mind, the specifics of what he believed generally don't seem to bear out in scientific experiments. And although Freud started out as a scientist and was a quite, a, quite a good one, he quickly uh, went into uh, therapy and into clinical psychology. And he really didn't conduct experiments to back up his hypotheses, but he made observations and made inferences based on his patients. And as, as psychology became a science and grew into an experimental science in the 20th century, people weren't really finding that his theories worked out in the lab and most of uh, scientific psychology through the 20th century really tended to ignore Freud's theories, and they dominated clinical psychology and, and as you say, our culture. It, it's interesting to me to think that through the 50s and 60s that most of the, the science of psychology ignored or, or actually dismissed the existence of well, the unconscious. Yes, well, even you know, even earlier in the early 20th century, with behavioralism dominating the field and and throughout most of the 20th century, the unconscious wasn't talked about much. And one of the reasons is that you can't really look inside someone's mind to see what's going on. You can test their behavior, but if, 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 and you can ask them about themselves, you can talk to them, but how do you study something that they're not aware is going on and you can't see inside their brain? That's very difficult. And so, so scientists tended to focus more on, on the conscious mind. And I must say, in addition to that, because the experiments didn't seem to bear out Freud's theories, scientists tended to shy away even from talking about the unconscious because they saw it as more of a cultural phenomenon than a scientific theory. It's interesting. And then um, in the 90s, was it, when we first got fMRI? Talk about yeah, that. Yeah, well, really fMRI was, at least became available to mm -hmm. experimenters in the mid-1990s, and that changed everything. So at that time, two of the dominant trends in psychology were called social psychology and cognitive psychology. Social psychology is a psychology of how we relate to each other. And people are, through our evolutionary heritage, are intrinsically very social beings. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about that later. But cognitive psychology was a study of how people think and the conscious deliberations that you go through. And it, by the early 1990s, there had been some really interesting behavioral studies that started to reveal that unconscious effects are influencing us, that they were doing experiments on people and, and noticing statistically that they were, let's say, buying something based on the package. But when they asked them if the color of the package affected them, they always said no, and yet they found that a great percentage bought the yellow and blue package rather than the plain-looking package. So there were a lot of experiments like that that seemed to give evidence that something is going on that's hidden from us. 
Then when, it, when the 90s came, it all kind of came together, shortly after that at least. In the 90s, people started doing these functional magnetic resonance imaging experiments. And functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is a mouthful, or fMRI, which is an easier way to say it, is a way of imaging your brain, kind of like you might imagine an x-ray does, but this is three-dimensional. It, it gives you a picture of your brain from all angles. You can slice up the brain any way you want virtually, turn it around, look inside and out. And not only, but not only can you see its physical structure in that way, but it lights up the parts of your brain that are active at any given time. So now for the first time, you could look inside people's heads and see what part of the brain and what structures in the brain were acting or were active at any given time depending on what they were experiencing. And by around the year 2001, all this came together, the field of social psychology and cognitive psychology and neuroscience with this new imaging, and it became a field called cognitive social neuroscience, or just for simpler uh, uh, term, social neuroscience. And social neuroscience combines cognitive psychology, social psychology, and these new techniques of fMRI to not only investigate how we relate to each other and the unconscious aspects of that and the unconscious influences on our thoughts, but actually to look in the brain and see what's producing them and why they're happening that way. You know, um, and this led to what you call the new unconscious, which is uh, a, a, a scientific belief in the unconscious and a scientific examine of the unconscious. You talk about um, conscious versus unconscious behavior, so I'd like you to um, explain a little bit, elaborate on that. So the new unconscious is what, what people in the field sometimes call the unconscious. By the way, I call the unconscious, the subconscious, non-conscious, they're all interchangeable. So modern science, there's no real difference between those. It's just your choice of terms, even though Freud had his you know, various ways of um, referring to different part, aspects of the unconscious, but pretty much it's interchangeable. The new unconscious is sometimes called the new unconscious to differentiate it from all that. Mm -hmm. And the new unconscious is an unconscious that's hidden from you intrinsically because it arises in structures in your brain that are not accessible to your conscious mind. The old unconscious or the Freudian unconscious was an unconscious that's hidden from you for motivational reasons. And it's something that you, you hid can, it you from can yourself. access. Hmm? You hid it from yourself. You hid it from yourself for reasons of fear or emotional reasons. but. But it was, in it was, in theory, accessible through therapy, through introspection, mm -hmm. by talking about it. And that was the whole point of, of analysis, but to see what was really going on in your unconscious and how it's influencing you. But the new unconscious is not that kind of unconscious at all. It's an unconscious that arose evolutionarily to help you deal with fellow human beings and deal with your sensory perception and deal with your surroundings in a very efficient, smooth, quick way to allow us to interact with ourselves and our environment quickly, just, just as it happens in our vision. When, with our, when you look at something, you're not really getting the data that you think you are. You, you're seeing a very clear three-dimensional picture, but the actual physics that, of your eye, the physical data that hits your retina, is a, is a, a very pixelated, fuzzy thing, and it's two-dimensional, and yet you perceive a clear three-dimensional picture. This is an example of how this is, this is done in parts of your brain that you cannot experience consciously. And it's just presented to you as a fait accompli. It's done automatically with no effort on your part. And you can't reverse it and see. You can't actually perceive the real data that's hitting your retina. But one point of this book is that your social unconscious works the same way. That you get data on people, on your surroundings, in our modern world, on purchases that, that you might be thinking of making, on financial decisions, on your friends. 
and all your social environment, and your unconscious mind does the same thing. It fills things in without your knowing it. And this takes place in parts of your brain that you can't access. And that's the new unconscious. It's, it's, it's a gift to you from evolution that allows you to automatically uh, exist and experience the world without stopping every minute to think, what am I seeing? What does it mean? You just, you just get it. And then your conscious mind is there sitting on top of all that and making willful decisions. It, it, as you described the unconscious with regards to vision, it's like a, a permanent set of hardwired 3D glasses. Yeah, it is. And, and we don't realize it, though. We think that what we see is what's out there. We think that what we, we remember is what really happened. People tend to think their memory is like a recording of what happened, a video or a movie of what happened. Because when you play it back in your mind, it is. But that's not true at all. Your memory is really a, a register of the gist of what happened. And that's when you need to, under, to remember something, you, you, you use that gist, but you also use the context, your expectations, prior knowledge, and you fill things in just like your eye fills in the fuzzy image that your retina gets. You fill in your memories to make it look like a real sharp recording of what happened. And that causes, as I discussed in the book, many problems, say, in... Um, in, in uh, criminal trials because people think they remember clearly, what, for instance, what someone looked like, and they often make mistakes. That was uh, Munsterberg who, who first coined the term gist. Well, Hugo Munsterberg was yeah. the first one, and this is lo- way ahead of his time, and it was totally ignored for a, almost a century after him, but it was around uh, 1907, 1908 he started to look at this because he, he was a psychologist uh, in Germany, and... William James was running the Harvard Psychology Lab and wanting to get out of it. <laughs> and he met Munsterberg in Germany and convinced him to come to Harvard to run over the psychology lab so that, uh, he, so that James could quit that and start doing philosophy <laughs> full-time. And so he brought Munsterberg over, and, and Munsterberg was uh, running the lab for, for a while. And when he had a funny thing happen, he, he experienced a burglar at his house. And he was out at the uh, seashore at the time. And when he came home, he found out his house had been broken into, and the police showed him around the house, and he, they showed him all the evidence of what happened, and, and he was telling them what was stolen, etc. And then he testified at the trial. And he later discovered that his memory of that day with the police of the scene, where he was seeing the evidence, uh, that, he, at, that his testimony at the trial about what he had saw, seen was very much misremembered. Uh, that he, there were many, many details that he got wrong and that he could, he could uh, prove by looking at what the police later found out that, that he was wrong. And yet he was known to have a brilliant memory and always gave his lectures, for instance, without notes at all. And so this got him thinking about what is our memory like? And as he thought about it, he, he thought about the mistakes he made, he realized what, that what happened in almost every case was that, that he remembered generally what happened. And as he was recalling his memory, he was filling in the details using the expectations, using things he had heard the police say, uh, using things other than the actual data that, that, his, that he had you know, um, observed that day. And he realized that this is a basic way that our minds work, that our, we all do that with our memories, and we don't realize that we're doing it. They seem very real to us. And so he started investigating this in other criminal cases, became the father of uh, forensic psychology. And they did all sorts of crazy things in those days. They would, for instance, they would have a, there was a time where there was a scientific lecture. And to test people's memories, they, without telling the audience, they had people bust in, talk to the professor giving the lecture, get into a fight, hit each other, and run out. 
And uh, the audience, of course, is in an uproar. What's going on? This is in Germany. They're very proper, you know. <laughs> and, and after they all ran out, he would say, wait, it was just a joke, everybody, but sit down now and I want you to write down what you saw. And he, they quizzed the people on what they saw. And they studied the differences between what these actors had done and what the audience had perceived as eyewitnesses. And they found exactly these same mistakes, that they would fill in details, like in one case, they saw the perpetrators as wearing hats. They swore they wore hats. They even remembered what kind of hats they wore. And because in those days, it was very common to wear hats, but none of them had worn any hats. And all the details could be explained in this way by you're filling things in based on, on your expectations and your general, your prior knowledge of things. And the reason we make mistakes in eyewitness testimony is you see someone's face, you remember again the gist of their face, which means the general features of their face. Then you go look at a police lineup. And if the police lineup has not, does not have the actual criminal in there, but has somebody that looks something like the criminal and, and the other people who don't, people quite often make that mistake and take the person who has a general look of the criminal, fill in the gist based on their expectations that the police caught the guy, and believe that that is the perpetrator. And that is such a strong effect that in one case I talk about in the book, a woman was raped. She studied during the rape, she, she made a point of studying the rapist's face. Afterwards, she saw a lineup that did not have the rapist in it, but the police thought it did. There was one guy in the lineup who looked like the rapist. She picked that guy. She was slightly unsure at first, but she said, I think it's that guy. The police said, you got him. After that, she was totally sure. There was a trial. He was convicted. And later on, the real rapist confessed in the jailhouse and caused a new trial to happen. And in the new trial, she had already identified the first guy so many times that she was sure it was him and not the guy who confessed. And she again pointed out the wrong guy in the trial. He was convicted a second time, given an even uh, longer sentence, and went back to prison. This was all before DNA evidence. And uh, some years later, DNA testing came, came into the play, and he managed to get the DNA. There was a little DNA evidence left over in, in his case files. He managed to get the DNA tested, and sure enough, it was the other guy, not him. He was finally exonerated after spending 17 years in prison. And this woman felt, of course, horrible that she had done this. But the, the explanation for that is exa exactly what I've been saying. She, she, she filled in the details, and that memory then became very real for her. The, you quote some really alarming uh, statistics about uh, the crime identification procedures. It it's just makes one frightened to ever be in a lineup or be in the vicinity of a lineup. It just seems so unreliable. I, I would be frightened to be in a lineup uh, for just those reasons. And, and the police know this. I mean, police, when they fill, up the, fill in the lineup, they often put in, of course, people they know are, n are not guilty or couldn't have even done it. There's one suspect, and everyone else is a filler. And quite often, the filler gets picked. And when the filler gets picked, they go, ugh, they made a mistake, right? But when the guy that they think is it gets picked, they go, that's it, that's the guy. And so, you know, they know that a lot of mistakes are made, but when the mistake confirms the um, their beliefs about the person who did it, it's not investigated any further, even though they know that mistakes are often made. It's so interesting, too. You say that um, not only do people, with memory, not only do people uh, forget details, uh, they make up new stuff, and, and, they'll, and, and the stuff they'll make up will become more real to them than what they've forgotten. The more you, you relive the memory, the more the real stuff feels, the, the, the more the, the stuff you made up feels real. I, I should 
emphasize, though, that by makeup, we're not talking about consciously makeup. We're talking about our unconscious fills it in. Again, going back to the, like the picture that's on your retina, which is not a very clear uh, picture and certainly not three-dimensional, and your eye takes that and process, your brain takes that and processes it and makes it look very clear and real by it filling it in, by making up something. So when I'm looking at you, what's there, what I'm perceiving is not really what's there. It's certainly not what's on my retina. But I'm making it up, and it works for me. I can talk to you. I can avoid you if you're coming after me. I can eat you if you're food. And we do the same thing in memory, and we do the same thing when we meet people. And when we get to know people, when we have acquaintances or casual friends, or when we analyze politicians, when we analyze people in the news, we get a little bit of data about their character, but we actually consciously feel like we know them a lot better than we really do. And it seems real to us. It's very hard to convince someone that these, these perceptions that really come from their unconscious mind aren't true perceptions. This has to do with just how much data we're taking in. We're taking in through our eyes and through all our senses just this incredible amount of data, which were we to be actually try to consciously deal with it, we'd just be crippled or paralyzed. So evolution has really done us a favor and put a, the subconscious as kind of a huge filter that cuts everything down to a, kind of like an outline. And then we can pull up the outline and fill it in and, on, when we need to, hopefully. That's exactly right, and that, that's the reason that, we, that, we, that it does this for us and that we've evolved this way. And if we didn't have that going on for us, we'd be frozen. We'd be like a computer that's overtaxed and just kind of freezes. We, it's been estimated that we take in about 11 million bits of data a second, and we can't really handle nearly that much. If, you've ever ha if you have kids and you have two kids, one talking in each ear, you'll know that you really have a hard time dealing with that. And yet your unconscious mind, I'm dealing now with your facial expression. I'm dealing with your posture. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also dealing with just plain physical perception of your looks. When you talk, I'm dealing with listening to the meaning of your words and also the emotion in the modulation of your voice. And I'm dealing with all, I'm dealing with being able to sit here and not fall over to keep myself vertical, right? I'm, I'm dealing with feedback about if I'm leaning, what is gravity doing to me and what do my muscles have to do to hold me up? And all this is coming into me simultaneously. And I have to deal with it all. And if I had to stop and think about and physically calculate it and calculate, analyze you and, and, and psychoanalyze you as we're talking to understand where you're coming from, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I'd just be frozen. You talk about pain and the way we experience pain and that emotional pain and physical pain are experienced by the same part of the brain, which is really interesting. And that this is something that begins the book, and this kind of is almost is flabbergasting. Uh, your parents are, are survivors of the camps, and, and you talk about how that experience you know now physically changed your mother's brain. It changed the way, the actual physical structures that experience what, what happens to us can change what, uh, the way our brain is built. That, that's right. The story I tell in the book is about my, when I was a graduate student at Berkeley, I used to call my mother every Thursday night and we'd chat for a while. And then one Thursday night I didn't do it because I, I was out on a date and she calls my roommate and asks, oh, uh, Len was supposed to call, but he didn't call. Can I talk to him? And she says, uh, he's not in. And so she says, oh, okay. And then she waits, I guess, a half hour or something, or an hour at first maybe, and she calls back again. I'm still not there. And then she starts to get suspicious, and she calls again and says, where is he? He must be home by now. And she says, no, he's still not home. And she says, what happened to him? 
He must, he must have been hurt. He's in a hospital. Uh, you know, why are you trying to hide it from me? Uh, and my roommate was starting to get, what is with this crazy woman? <laughs> said, no, really, he just, he just went out. My mother must have called a dozen times. And by the end, she was accusing my roommate of hiding my death. And she said, you know, if my son died, why aren't you just telling me? I'm going to find out. And eventually, my roommate stopped answering the phone. <laughs> and when I talked to my mother about this, she didn't see anything unusual in it at all. Because we, when we look at what's going on, we fill in, what, we make stories. We make, I make stories about who you are, what you're thinking, other people that you meet. And you make stories about what went on. And, and you can't help those stories or those predictions that your brain makes because your, the, what your brain does for us, one of, the, one of the most important things is it makes predictions. You have to predict what's going to happen if I see a tiger, what's going to happen if I step off this cliff, and what's going to happen if whatever is going on. That, that's how you get through life. So this prediction about what happened to me, my mother's brain was making it, but it was informed by her unconscious ex mind due to her experiences decades earlier where practically overnight she lost her sister, her mother, her father, all her friends. And she's always living in the, with this context that things can, that, that can happen, that can automatically be taken from you. And so when she, uh, when she called, that's, that's what was shaping her perception. She didn't realize, I talked to her about it, she didn't realize that, that, what's, what, that her uh, talking to my roommate in that way and her guessing this happened was anything unusual at all. You know, um, you were talking about the importance of stories, and I, and I think that's that's really true because humans are a narrative species. We define ourselves by stories. If I ask you, "Who are you?" the only thing you can tell me is a story. Right. We all we make stories of who we are, just like I make stories of who you are. Mm -hmm. And if I don't know you that well, then I I fill in the blanks and I make a story of who I am. I know myself better, but you don't know a lot of your motivations because they're unconscious. And what one of the things your unconscious mind does for you is it helps you paint a rosy picture of your, who you are so you can be happy with yourself. And that's a, a positive evolutionary trait. Yeah, because we often, first of all, nobody, nobody can function very well if they're not happy with themselves. If you, know, if you get depressed, you don't want to do anything, you don't want to move, you don't want to eat, you just want to sleep all day, that's not a way to survive. So you want to be happy with yourself if you're going to survive. But also, you face challenges all the time. You face professional challenges, and you face medical challenges, you face almost insurmountable challenges sometimes, things that if you looked at them realistically, you wouldn't know how you'd get through. And the way to get through is to put one foot in front of the other and to close your eyes to some of the challenges and to think that you can do it, and maybe to think unrealistically that you can do it. But only by thinking that way can you actually have a chance of accomplishing it. And this is called motivated reasoning in psychology and the, the, the way it works is when you look at the data about the challenges before you or about who you are, there are different ways of, of analyzing the data. When data comes at you, you might, there might be some data that says that you can do it, some data that says you can't do it, and the question is what's the meaning of the different data and you will tend to weigh, you will tend to sincerely believe that the data that is tends to confirm what you want to happen is the most important data. You're not going to talk yourself into it. You're going to sincerely believe it because your unconscious mind leads you that way. And you're also going to, when you look at the methodology that used to collect the data, you're going to unconsciously be tending to poke holes in that data, but to freely accept the, the methodology that gives you the other data. 
when you remember things, you're going to remember the positive more than the negative. And all these different effects are called motivated reasons. They come together and help you to have a positive view of yourself, to think that you're above average, to think that you're better, that, 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 that the traits that you um, possess um, are the important traits, and to think that if you're looking at starting a business, for instance, to, to believe that you can um, succeed in the business and tend to ignore uh, the, the, the uh, data that says maybe it won't work, and so on. And, and it's called motivated reasoning, and it, it's really a gift to us. But, it, you know, it can also lead us astray because it does give us a skewed view of, of, of the external world. Uh, let me give you one example of how skewed it is. There was a study where they had uh, subjects, they divided the subjects into two uh, groups. They told one group, you're going to represent the plaintiff in a lawsuit. They told the other group, you're going to represent the defendant. And the lawsuit was about a crash between a motorcycle and a car. This is in Texas. In Texas. <laughs> and the actual award that the motorcyclists got was somewhere between zero and $100,000. And they had the people, they gave the, the subjects all the data from the case and the transcripts to read. And they took their time and they digested everything and got their, got their um, arguments together. And then they were going to go off, pair off, and negotiate with someone from the other side their own version of the settlement. But just before they went off, the, the researcher said, wait a minute, this is, you, know, you know this is just a game. I, said, I signed you guys to be uh, represent the defendants and you guys to represent the uh, plaintiff. But take that hat off now. We're going to stop the game, take a timeout, and I want you to make an objective guess based on the stuff you just read as to what the actual award was. And if you can get it within $5,000, I'll give you a cash bonus. So now they were motivated by actual real cash to forget that they were taking one side or another and to think about the data that they read in an objective way. Well, what happened, the, the subjects who, were going, who had read all the, all the stuff, all the data, thinking they were going to represent the plaintiff, guessed that $40,000 was fair and on average, and those who were going to represent the defendant thought that $20,000 was average. So they, they couldn't because they're unconscious. When they digested the data, they thought they were going back and looking at it objectively, but their motivated reasoning, they're, they're wanting their side to sound better when they were digesting the data, made them digest it in, uh, beyond their, in a way that's beyond their control, made them digest it in a way that's favorable to the side that they were taking. You talk about how important being social is, how, how, how huge an accomplishment that is of humanity. That's one of the things that really separates us from the animals. Yes, well, scientists believe that really the purpose of our higher intelligence, if you want to call it that, is not for things like physics, which are nice, and, and technology, mathematical reasoning, problem-solving ability, but rather for our social ability. Because it, it, you may not realize it until you think about it, but it takes a, a, a big brain to be able to interact socially in a, the complex way that we humans interact. You have to be able to understand what someone else is thinking, what a lot of other people are thinking, and you have to be able to understand what, what they're thinking that you're thinking. That's called theory of mind. Theory and, of mind, yeah. And, and we have a much of, more developed theory of mind than other animals. Mm -hmm. And you call this, you have something, what you call the levels of intentionality? Yeah, well, the scientists uh, differentiate between different levels of intentionality. Okay, now, okay, sit down in your chair for this one. Okay, so I can feel that I am conscious of what I'm thinking, 
or I can feel, okay, that's one, one level, then I can feel that I know what you're thinking. Or I can know what you're thinking that I'm thinking. Or I can go deeper and know that and, and, and understand what you're thinking that I'm thinking that you're thinking. And so on. And you can go down to, I mean, some humans, they think, can go to sixth order back and forth like this. And think about what a novelist has to do to write a book. This is why a chimp can't write a book. You have to be able to know um, that the, the, as you're writing the book, you have to know that, that the reader is going to think that this character thinks that this character is thinking what this character thinks and, and things like that. And it's, or if you're running a company, you have to know if I do this, the uh, CEO is going to think that I think that he thinks blah, blah, blah. And, and it, it, when you, if, you, if you consider this, you'll see that it, it, really, uh, it really does go quite deep in your own, in your own life in the, uh, this understanding of, of what everyone's thinking that everyone else thinks. Autism has become more and more talked about. And what you point out is that autism is just a lack of an ability to, un, to form a theory of mind. And I've never heard it put so eloquently and so simply, and that makes so much sense. Well, thank you. And um, yeah, it, autism, there's been a lot of insight gained into autism in recent years. And one of my, I think, favorite stories that illustrates that is something um, that Oliver Sacks wrote about Temple Grandin. And, and she was an autistic woman. And she talked about when she was a child and she would watch the other children playing. And this is, really illustrates what happens when you don't have a theory of mind. And she thought, to her, the other children were like aliens. She doesn't know why they're acting the way they are, why they're talking to her the way they are, why they think of her the way they do, why they react to her the way they do. To her, they were, they were, it was like watching uh, Martians. And that's the way it would be if we didn't have theory of mind. And it's hard to imagine us cooperating in complex social structures if we don't have that. And of course, you know, we think of social structures today when I talk about this, but you have to think back when humans living in the wild were not really that capable of surviving on their own. It was only when we could gang up together to catch the big animals or to uh, create agriculture, to grow things, to, to um, build our shelters. It was very important that we worked, or to, even to beat off predators. It was very important that we all work together. And so the survival of our species depended on us having this theory. And, it, don't, and this was also before we had written and spoken language. So. Our, our survival as a species dependent on, on us somehow understanding each other without that, and that's where the theory of mind comes in. Temple Grandin described the other children as like as regarding them as if they were telepathic. Yeah, because to her they were th that's right because they were communicating, and she didn't know how they were understanding each other. And this is telepathy. This is the kind of telepathy that we, by facial expressions, by body language, or voice, if it, you, you can take something that someone says, you can cut out the highest uh, notes, the highest frequencies, and that will make the speech unintelligible because without those high frequencies, you can't distinguish the consonants very well. And you can play that speech for someone and they will still get the emotion behind it. They will still understand what, what the, the feelings that, that the person has. So all these different aspects of our uh, unconscious mind are are communicating to each other, even aside from our conscious uh, verbal communication. You know, you talk about uh, Bartlett, and he kind of had this idea of mental scripts. 
And I love that idea. That makes it so clear. And, and, and this is something that happened, seems to have happened a lot in this field, where somebody does this absolutely groundbreaking work. It proves to be very prescient. They do it. It gets completely ignored. And 100 years later, somebody says, wow, that guy, he was really on to something. <laughs> That's right. This happens again and again in this book. It does, and there, you know, people like Munsterberg, like William James, like Bartlett, they, mm -hmm. they, they, they had great insights, and then uh, for at least many decades, they, they, no one really followed up on that. And then as we got into the modern era now, uh, where the unconscious mind is being uh, studied and looked at with the new imaging techniques, and, and we're learning a lot more about it, we're realizing that some of these very early people were on, were on to something. Like this, one of my favorite stories with the scripts that shows how, you, how we all exhibit pretty much automatic habitual behavior in our social interactions had to do with making Xeroxes at a Xerox machine. And uh, what, the, what the researchers did was they had someone uh, in an office wait till someone else, till an office worker was using the Xerox machine, and then walk up and try and butt in. <laughs> and they found that the person walked up and said, excuse me, um, I, I'd like to use the Xerox machine because I'm in a rush. Then I think it was, uh, I've forgotten now, maybe 80% of the, of the people said, oh, sure, no problem. If they walked up and they said, excuse me, uh, I'd like to get ahead of you in the Xerox machine, <laughs> only about, I think, 7% of the people allowed them to do that. They didn't give a reason. Mm -hmm. And the psychologists were wondering, are people letting the other person in ahead of them because they're considering the reason and deciding that, that it was, that, that the other person's uh, needs were, should supersede theirs? Or are they just following a mental script which says, if someone walks up and wants to get ahead and they have a reason, I should let them ahead. So what they did was they had people come up to the person who was doing the Xeroxing and say, excuse me, uh, can I get ahead, of, can, I, can I get ahead of you in the Xerox, uh, in Xerox, to the Xerox machine because I have to make some copies? And this sounds like a pretty lame reason. The question was, is that, by giving that reason, is that going to trigger a script where the person says, sure? Or is the person going to consciously analyze the reason they gave, which is no reason at all, and, and decide that, that they shouldn't let them in? Well, what they found when they came up and they gave a reason which didn't make any sense, they still 80% of the time let them in, as opposed to the 7% of the time is when they walked up and didn't give a reason. So just giving a reason doesn't make sense sets the person going on a mental script which says, oh, someone has, you know, wants to get in here and they let you in. You know, one of the things that's so interesting about this book is all the experiments you describe. Um, and there's a, they're really entertaining to read about. They're wildly imaginative and kind of, it's a, it, it's a book that's literally mind-boggling from almost page to page. Um, and these experiments all seem to be, I mean, these are not like, uh, deeply technological or biological experiments. These are kind of like uh, parsing a lot uh, experiments that where the um, scientists have come up with uh, logic parsing rules to, to figure stuff out. I just think that's just such a fascinating way to uh, explore the human mind. Yeah, if you want to get at the unconscious, you, you have to do sometimes, you have to, first of all, isolate one effect so you don't have many things going on at once and they have to get kind of tricky about how you do the experiment because you're you're not you're you're, you're testing things that people aren't aware of that not even aware they're doing so how are you going to find out about that 
at least from the behavioral side. I mean, as I said, today we can pair these experiments with, uh, with brain imaging experiments to, to see what's actually going on. But let me give you an example. Wine. Let's suppose you, you like wine. Okay, you, when you decide to go buy a bottle of wine, your conscious mind is saying, well, I like a red, I, you might say I like a Cabernet or a Pinot or whatever you like. I'm having this for dinner, this goes with it. And, and you make, and you look at the price and you, and you put everything together, you look at the vineyard, you look at the vintage, and you, make a, you take all this data that you have and your conscious mind is weighing it. What you don't realize is your unconscious mind is also having its input. And uh, your, your mood can be very important to that, and you don't even realize that you're buying the wine not based on all this data, but on your mood. And there was a, a, a store in England that did a, allowed experimentalists to do a nice study. They had French and German wine in the same aisle and comparably priced wine. And on alternate days, they played very softly either French music or German music. And you'd think that when you're going to buy the wine, you're not buying, you're not basing it on the music as you're weighing what bottle you should buy. In fact, people who were interviewed after the experiment, most of them didn't even remember hearing music. So this is really not only, I mean, obviously you might be conscious of the music, but you're not conscious of the effect it has on you usually. And that people forget even that they heard the music, but what they really did was they weighed the music very heavily, as heavy or, more, or even heavier as the other data of the price and the kind of wine. Because what the experimentalists found was that on days where the German music played, two-thirds of the people bought German wine, and in the days that the French music was played, two-thirds of the people bought French wine. So overriding their preferences, perhaps their innate preferences for one kind of wine or the other, was this music that was playing in the background. And this happens everywhere in our lives. It happens in stockbrokers, very highly trained people trained to um, analyze companies and to, of course, try to make a, a, as much profit as they can. But what some finance researchers discovered uh, was that they're also affected greatly by their mood. Their, their quantitative analysis is affected uh, by their mood. And what they did was they looked at the New York Stock Exchange over 20 or 30 years. This was done in the 90s. And they, and they parsed out the days. They looked at, back through the weather reports from New York City, and they looked at what happened to the stock market on days that were purely sunny, where, where the sun was out all day. And they looked on what happened to the market on days that were completely overcast or rainy. And what they found was that on days when the sun was out all day, the market went up about 24%, and it went up about 8% on the other days, on the purely rainy days. So obviously the weather, as these traders were going and trying to weigh all the pros and cons of, of where the market's going, they were really weighing the weather. Now, uh, I, I think one of the things about this book that makes it so interesting is it's really well written and constructed. I mean, as a reading experience, you get us hooked in right away and take us through in a really logical manner. And there's lots of great, as I say, great experiments. I'd like you to just talk about, I mean, there are, I and it's fairly short. I'm guessing there's probably a, a book that's four times as thick out there <laughs> somewhere. So talk about sifting through the data that you you know, the choices you had to make, uh, putting together the book and, and architecting it. Well, there were, there were I, I, I probably read about 900, um, I estimated about 900 uh, uh, scientific research articles for this book and about 
a little fewer than half of them, I think, are quoted in the book. I mean, the book's, what, 220, 30 pages. It could have been 1,000 pages if I put everything in and really talked about it all, and I figured no one would have bought it. <laughs> so what I had to do was weigh two things or three things. I had to look at what's the most important in the field um, and what's the most interesting and what's the most interesting to people and um, what do I have to put in to give people the essence of what's going on and not make it a textbook? <laughs> So that's what I did, and that's why it, it took four years to write the book. Um, it wasn't all full-time because, you know, I wrote the book with Stephen Hawking in that time, too, on and off. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I, um, but but it, was, uh, it was a difficult undertaking that I could only do because motivated reasoning <laughs> took over and convinced me that I could do it and that it wouldn't be that tough. And it was a lot tougher than I thought it would be at the beginning. And actually, as long as I mentioned motivated reasoning, I did want to say one other thing about it. Uh, your brain can act in two ways. Uh, as a scientist, taking the data that's there and drawing a con re using your reasoning to draw a conclusion, or as a lawyer, taking the conclusion that you want and working backwards to find the arguments that support it. And your unconscious tends to push you toward the latter. So I knew I wanted to write this book because I was really interested in the topic. I was interested in how... Um, our inner, we don't understand our inner world, that, that we have uh, a, a false picture of our inner world because we don't understand the unconscious. And I wanted to write that book, and my motivated reasoning helped me see all the reasons I could write that book rather than probably drawing the opposite conclusion, which is how tough it would be to write that book, uh, given the new technologies and experiments in neuroscience that I would have to sift through to, to get to that. Now, one of the things that I think um, that... Uh, is so interesting now is that what was once the domain of speculation is now uh, a, there's a lot of hard science with with the fMRI and we can actually see like what parts of the brain are lighting up so that we understand now why for example uh, Tylenol is something you could take if your heart was broken it might make you feel better well yeah it's funny because you did mention that earlier we never talked about that but you know, what are, what, well, let's start with what is pain for? What is pain there for? It's so that I hit my ha hand with a rock, I know that's a bad thing to do because it hurts, right? And it, it, it helps me avoid physical damage to my body. Well, emotional pain is there for the same reason. It, it, helps, it helps you to avoid actual damaging experiences. So if, if, if we're all working together in a society, it's better for us to feel emotional pain when we lose someone that's, that, that, that is an ally because it helps us all work together to keep each other alive and so on. There's, there are reasons for emotional pain. It, 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 it's there to help you make wise survival decisions. And so where does the pain come in your brain? Well, scientists now can look in your brain and see, see the origin of pain. And physical pain has an origin in two parts of your brain. One is associated with the actual sensory experience and the other is associated with uh, the emotional experience of the pain, the feeling of it hurting. And what about emotional pain, like when you're rejected socially? Well, scientists have looked at MRI, they've, they've, they've arranged, <laughs> sounds a bit cruel, but they've arranged for people to be rejected socially in, in, their, in laboratory experiments. And they've looked in their brain to see what's going on when this happens. And they see that one of those uh, parts of the brain that is involved in physical pain is the part of the brain that's involved in emotional pain. And then they had this idea, what happens if, since Tylenol suppresses the pain, 
what happens if you give people Tylenol, and they did some field studies giving people Tylenol and testing their, them for their level of emotional pain as they go through certain, uh, certain things. And they found that, that behaviorally, the Tylenol does seem to also suppress emotional pain. So uh, indeed, they can see this is a good, uh, this is a good example of how that they, they now can not only do the behavioral testing to see what's going on, but they can look in your brain to see why it's going on. And confirm that what they what they inferred from the behavioral work is really what's happening. One of the things that I found really interesting was that you talk about how they think we have what you called category neurons, mm-hmm. and this is one of the ways that we parse the world by slapping things into categories. That helps us create this kind of a black and white picture because that's what we really are as humans. We are really black and white. This whole shades of gray thing—that's for—that's <laughs> for books. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are there are cases where you can do shades of gray, but your default is the more black and white because you have you you can't every time you get on a bus you can't say, "What does this person sitting behind the wheel do?" You can't go, "Oh, well, why is he sitting behind the wheel? Why is the money thing there?" But you have a category called bus driver, and you put that person in there, and you have a certain idea that if I don't rush, if I dilly-dally getting up, this person might get mad at me. Or if I don't put the right amount of money, and they might not like that either. You kind of know what to do. You have a category bus driver. If you see a guy with a blue uniform and a gun on his hip or her hip, you, you know this is a policeman and you know, or a policewoman, and you know why that person has the gun, and you don't have to puzzle it out every time. So, it, or in the physical world, you know, if, if you, you don't have to decide every time you get near a cliff that it's a dangerous place to be because a fall could, could be painful. You have this category, cliffs, high, high places. So, you know, as we go through life, we're constantly dealing with categories to simplify things, to allow us to move smoothly rather than stopping every few steps to figure out what's going on. And the problem is that this also causes illusions, just like we have optical illusions. And one of the illusions that can cause it's unfortunate is, is racial prejudice because when we're, if we're exposed to too many racial stereotypes in our lives, which the media does tend to do, then what happens is when we see people, we tend, we tend to categorize them, and that category contains those stereotypes. So there's, we have, even if we are the most um, fair-minded person, there's a good chance that you have unconscious uh, prejudices against certain groups purely based on your constant exposure to, to those uh, stereotypes. Now, you even uh, give the derivation of the word stereotype, how it was first a uh, French printer. But tell us about Walter Lippmann and his book, Public Opinion, another one of those books that seemed way ahead of its time. It was, and I think it was around 1920. And he 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 resurrected this work stereotype and used it for the, in the way we use it today. So the original stereotype was really a way of, um, when you were printing a book, you used to have to have a, uh, a metal plate and push it on the paper to print the book. And this was a way of, of mass producing the metal plate so you could print many books at one time. And so that was called the stereotype. And, and he, what he said back then, which sounds like today, is modern media is expanding greatly and giving us experience of other people that you know, far different than we would normally encounter in our everyday in our everyday life in our small town or wherever we live, because we have magazines now, we have radio, and and we have film, and what kind of experiences are we having? Well, the people who run these media things, 
uh, they tend to use stock characters. The f in fact, the word stock character, that's where it comes from, the early days of film, where they would get uh, some Italian guy from, uh, I don't know, from the Bronx or Brooklyn, wherever the Italians lived back then, and they would get some pe person who looked in a certain way and talked in a certain way to all be the Italian guy. And, and they would do this for all the different kinds of characters. And Whitman was worried that this kind of stereotype, he called this stereotyping because we're now mass producing this one image, this one idea of a ethnic group. And he was worried that since our experience now of other people is largely coming through these new media, that we would start to have these kinds of prejudices or stereotypes against people. And he warned about it way back then. And it's certainly as true today as it ever was. You talked too about the in-groups and out-groups the, and the way our experience of those. So explain what you mean by those and, and some of the experiments that have been done to document how that behavior works. Well, since humans are such social animals, we've, going back tens of thousands of years and uh, even beyond that, we've allied ourselves with other humans in groups and tribes. And we've those, those alliances have, were formed for their own survival, but not necessarily for the survival of outside groups. And our, our brains have evolved in a way that to naturally favor our in-groups and naturally be prejudiced against our out-groups. And one of the, my favorite experiments about that uh, is where they uh, divide, take people, come bring them into the lab, and they, they artificially put them in groups. They just say, you're in group A, you guys are in group B. And then they have them do various things to see how they, how they react. One of the things they have them do is they give them a certain amount of money they can divide up between, between the subjects. Now, you don't know the other people in your group. You don't even see them. You're just told like some random names, James, John, Bob, they're with you, and uh, Joe, Ralph, and Harold are in, the, are in group B or whatever. And then they, they would give them these, in those days they weren't spreadsheets, but they're like spreadsheets, and they would say, they give them a series of opportunities to divide up money. And they would look at how they divided up the money. And it was a little bit complicated how that worked, but they were, their choices were to give money to these different people, some of whom were in their group, some of whom were in the other group. And these are people they didn't even know, so they had no real reason to favor them other than they were in an arbitrary group with them, you know, your group A and your group B. And they found that people were amazing that, uh, that they would give significantly more money to people in their group and not only that they would tend to maximize the difference if they if, even if they, even if the total money they could give was less if they gave more money to their group than the other group they would still tend to make that choice even if it caught even if the people in their group got less money because they're giving let because of the way it was designed if you give people in the other group less money then people in your group have to get less money too they would still do make that choice to to give the other group as little as possible, even at the expense that your guys get less money, in order to maximize the difference between the two groups. And this is really astounding that people would be like that, given that the groups were totally meaningless. Now, this book, too, has a, gives us a great vision of how humans interact with the, all the nonverbal cues. And, and I love that your... Uh, uh, verbal dominance uh, ratio that you talk about. That's a, that's a visual, big, visual big, dominance ratio. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, okay, so we're primates, right? And primates, you may have heard, of course, uh, have, have dominance hierarchies. 
And how do they maintain these? In, in, you know, human dominance hierarchies, you have, if you're in the army, you have an insignia that says you're the captain or you're the colonel or you're the private. If, certainly if you're in an organization, then you're the, there's a vice president, executive vice president, and so on. And we have these, these, all these terms. But in our social interactions with other people, even if they're not strictly speaking in uh, uh, a hierarchy that where we have an insignia, we also have uh, different. We also behave in a way that signals our dominance, just like the apes do. And the way we do that is when we talk to somebody, it has to do with the amount of uh, the way we look into their eyes. Now, some people like to look into your eyes when they speak to you, and some people, you know, like to look away. But that's not really what's important. What's important is the is the is the relative amount of time they that some someone spends looking at you when you're speaking to them versus when they're speaking to you. So if you're a more dominant person, then when someone, th th then when someone speaks to you, you might look away. But when you're, what, what, it, it, let's take it from the point of view of the listener. If you're listening to someone who's talking and they are more dominant than you, you're going to tend to look at them more while, while they're speaking and less while you're speaking. So you might look away more a little bit while you're speaking, but you're going to stare them in the eye obediently while they're speaking. And they, people, uh, psychologists... His master's voice. His master's <laughs> voice. Psychologists have recorded people in their natural conversations and then taken those tapes and analyzed them to see how much time they spend looking in each other eye, other's eyes. And it's really amazing. It's about one-to-one -one usually if you're dominant. Uh, but if you're... If you're not dominant and you're talking to the person, then it's much less, it's like 0.6. Now, uh, that's one of the things I think that makes this book so fascinating is that as you read this book, it changes the way that you see yourself. You can't, all of a sudden, you, you this book is, is like a, its own pair of 3D glasses that you're going to be looking back or more like mirror glasses. You're looking back in your own mind and saying, wait, 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 why did I do that? <laughs> well, I do that. I, I do that now. Not only me, but you, you, it's interesting. You start to look at how you know other people's behavior. Sometimes you're more understanding of other people. Like uh, an editor told me that he, uh, she got into a big fight with an agent, and she was telling me about the fight and said it was very unusual. She was a little disturbed by it because uh, normally she gets along with this agent very well, and suddenly this this negotiation turned very acrimonious. And what I realized, though, in talking, it became clear that. She went into that conversation in a very tense mood due to something early that happened earlier in the day, and and her body was all tensed up. Her her physiological traits were all you know in a tense state, and she was misinterpreting that carryover of her bodily state to being upset with this agent, and that caused that triggered her to get into this fight with the agent, and. You know, now that I understand these things better, I, I have more understanding for what's going on, how someone reacts to me, and how I react to other people. And so I think this kind of science may actually uh, have a, a, a significant change in the way uh, society organizes itself as this becomes, as this knowledge becomes more internalized. Yeah, well, ho hopefully that, that we, we're all raising our consciousness if we all learn about this, but. Uh, First, people have to understand what's going on, and then they can apply it. I've been speaking with Leonard Milanoff. His new book is Subliminal, How Your Unconscious Mind Rules Your Behavior. Thank you for joining me, Leonard. Thanks. It's been fun. 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.